0: So we're in our second week of our Advent series. Um, Remember that word Advent means the arrival or the anticipated arrival. So we are talking all about the first coming of Jesus. And today we're going to a unique section. So the place we're going to find ourselves today is in 2 Samuel. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, we're going to spend a lot of time in chapters 11 and 12. Psalm 51 is a direct response to what happens in this part of Second Samuel. So why, why this passage? Why, why is this the passage we're going to look at today? Well, you remember, if you've been with us for a bit, you know that we, uh, we sold these Advent blocks, these blocks that count down to the coming of Christ. And they recount the entire story of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way until Jesus is born. And today we find ourselves, 10 days in, we find ourselves with the story of King David. As we are looking for Emmanuel, God with us, we now come to Israel's greatest king. So let's review David's story a little bit. This king was a man after God's own heart. He was the premier king. He He was the top He was also the one all other kings would be judged by. He was the great, 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 and many, many more grandfather of our king of kings, Jesus Christ. Now David is the second king of Israel, taking the place of King Saul, who uh, by the end of his reign was a full-on train wreck. David wrote most of the book of Psalms. Um, He is heralded as the greatest king of Israel. And to this day, David has a prominent place. Israel's capital, Jerusalem, is called the City of David. Even to this day, the symbol that is most associated with the nation of Israel, ethnic and nationally, is the Star of David. Now, if you were going to write David's life story... And you were just to go, let's see what the average person knows. And you were to ask somebody on the street, what are the two stories of David that you know, or what are the stories that you would know? The percentage of people that would get the two stories that we're going to talk about are probably pretty high. I'd say most people could probably come up with the first one. David, that little shepherd boy, slaying the nine-foot giant Goliath. I think everybody knows that story. But the second story is one that I think David wishes not everybody knew about. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. One, David killing Goliath, he was just a young boy, can be excused for foolishness, but yet his faith, that childlike faith, trusting the Lord in the face of a nine-foot giant, is epic. The second one, he's the king. He's the conquering king, living in opulence, and he sins with Bathsheba. Now, forget whatever you think you know about the David and Bathsheba story if all it does is come from a Hollywood movie. They got it 100% wrong, except for the fact that there is a David and a Bathsheba in history. Other than that, everything else in that story is wrong. So today what we're going to do is, this is really a two-part sermon. We're going to start off, we're going to look at the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, just so we're all on the same page with what happened. Then we're going to spend the last third of the sermon talking about three things we can glean from this story. So here we go. We're going to look at David and, Goli- David and Bathsheba's story almost as if it's a, you know, a grocery store tabloid. So starting in, verse one, or starting in verse 8 of chapter 7, we're going to go back a little bit because I want you to see where David started from. So David, in chapter 7, wanted God to, he wanted to build God's house. And God goes, I love that about you, David. However, I want to build a house for you. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from a pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. So the Lord says, I took you. You were just this little shepherd, scrawny shepherd boy, and I have made you this triumphant king. Skip down to verse 16 of 7. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this has always been understood to be a prophecy because David couldn't live forever. David's bones are buried in the ground. He is not living forever, but yet his throne is established forever through who? Through Jesus. In verse 18, King David goes, who am I, O Lord, God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Verse 21, because of your promise, Lord, because of your own, according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. What a great testimony to David's heart. David's not sitting there and going, well, you know, I have really good aim with that rock. Well, you know, I'm this this genius when it comes to military. No, he's saying, Lord, this should not have happened, and yet you have made me into a great king. He pours out his praise to God for his goodness. Now, chapters 8, 9, and 10 recount more of David's victories defeating his enemies every single time, including a story where he pours love out on the grandson of his archenemy, King Saul, where he finds Jonathan's disabled son and adopts him into his family. You can see why the Lord would say, this is a man after my own heart. And then we get to chapter 11. David sends his armies out to fight Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, when the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now let me give you a picture of this. Go ahead and go to the next slide for me. So here is what Jerusalem looked like at the time. This is where the temple is going to be built eventually. This is David's palace. And what you need to understand is that this is the highest point in all of Jerusalem. And David is up here on one of the tops of these buildings looking down, and he sees a woman bathing. Literally, David looks down on the city. Now, Bathsheba is not bathing like we would think bathing. One thing I always used to tell my students is that when you think of history, you need to remember that history stinks, right? I mean, literally. Like, you, you don't want to go back in time because it's going to smell really bad everywhere you go. Washing once a year a full-body bath is an exception to the rule. Most of the time, it's dirty. That's why they say don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because they all used the same water and the baby got to go last. So you can imagine what that water looked like. So Bathsheba is not in a bathtub on top of her house for two reasons. One, they didn't do that. Number two, it would require a lot of effort to get the water onto a roof. There's no plumbing, right? We have the uh, just push a button and water comes out. They would have had to have lugged it up there. So what is Bathsheba doing? She's probably simply wiping herself down, some sort of toweling off her arms and hands. In a few minutes, we'll see in the next section, it said she just got done with her purification rituals. So there is no need to establish, think that Bathsheba's up there being naked and doing that for the king. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That was the bathing. Then she returned to her house. Now David didn't invite her. David didn't woo her. David didn't lure her. David didn't trick her. David stole her. David took her. This is an absolute abuse of David's power. And it's unconscionable. Notice that in this verses three and four, David takes all the action. He took her. He sent for her. He came to her. She, he made her lay with him. All of it is his actions. Now, what happens next is Bathsheba tells one of the messengers, I'm pregnant. So now David has been caught in his sin. But instead of confessing it, but instead of dealing with it, he goes, I can't let anybody know I have to cover this up. So he calls for Uriah, one of his favorite and one of his famous soldiers. Uriah comes, and David says, go to your wife. Go be at home. Take a load off. You've been fighting. You need to go. Now, Uriah's in a bit of a quandary. The king has told him to go be with his wife. But the Bible says, when you're at war, you don't go be with your wife. So Uriah says, I'm going to follow what God says, not the king. And he sleeps outside. David sees this, and he's more than a little upset. All right, Uriah, go back to war. Send this note that I've written that says, put Uriah at the front of the line and pull back. So Uriah, just like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, is handed a note with his death explanation. So Uriah goes, gives it to Joab. Joab goes, all right, puts Uriah at the front of the battle. The battle is starting to turn. They pull back. Uriah is dead. Then after a period of mourning, David takes Bathsheba as his wife. The king is unfaithful. His servant is faithful. Interesting kind of comparison there. So David thinks he's gotten away with it, and he's like, yes, I did it. And then we get to the final verse of chapter 11, verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Up until this point, the entire chapter of 11 is all David did, David did, David did, David. If we didn't have this final verse here, we would think David got away with it. But the literal translation is the thing David had done was evil in God's eyes. David thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's got away with it, but oh, that changes with this final phrase. It's as if David thinks he can just do whatever he wants and weave whatever cover up until he runs right smack into the judgment of God, and God says, this is evil. See, we need to remember that just because God is silent does not mean evil is getting away with it. I think that's important enough that we hear that again. Just because God is silent and not doing something does not mean evil is getting away with it. It does not mean he's not watching. It does not mean he not, does not care. No, God is right there, and he sees all of it. God is silent, but he is not sightless. The thing that David had done was evil in God's eyes. David may have Bathsheba's flesh, Uriah's blood, but he has to face God's eyes. So now we turn to chapter 12. The first seven words, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now who's this Nathan? Well, we actually saw him earlier in seven. We just didn't see his name. He's the prophet of God. He's the spokesperson, the mouthpiece for God. And so God says, I want to talk to David. I'm going to send him Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is great news for David. God pursues those who walk away. God will not allow his servant to stay comfortable in his sin, but will ruthlessly expose it. You may be successful in your unfaithfulness, but God will come after you. What immense and genuine comfort is that Not that God's pursuing grace and his convicting grace is at all enjoyable, but imagine if God didn't have that grace and he didn't come for us. What if God abandoned us when we began succeeding at sin? I once heard a coach say, don't worry about me yelling at you during the game. It means I still care and I think you can get better, but oh, you should start worrying when I stop yelling at you. Because that means I don't trust you, and you're coming to the bench. I think the same thing goes for here. You know, we, we, are, we, we don't like being convicted of sin, but yet the conviction of sin and God pursuing us is a great thing for our good, even though it hurts. So God didn't give up on David despite his heinous sin. So Nathan comes to David, knowing that if he confronted David, David would have all sorts of excuses. Instead, he tells a parable. And I I love how this parable plays out because David thinks it's a real story. He doesn't catch that it's a parable. And he gets all kingly at the end and is like, whoa, we got to fix this problem. So here's the parable, verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Notice here, this parable, he doesn't say, oh, they had this lamb, and and you stole him. Oh, it's so bad. Actually, it goes even deeper than that. Look at what he says. He says, you stole her, you killed her, and you ate her. This theft and killing, not, not Uriah's death, but this theft and killing of Bathsheba. The little helpless lamb was taken and served as a meal to fulfill David's appetites. David didn't love her. David was using her because of her beauty. How heinous is this? Let this land on us that this is bad. Now David's story is not here to minimize or excuse, nor is it to be a template for us minimizing and excusing sins like this in our world. In fact, this is here so we see the consequences of sin. As a matter of fact, most of David's story from this point on is going to be the failures that come from this story throughout it's David's children and his family that are a stinking hot mess from this point forward. So look at David's words in verses 5 and 6. David says it. He says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Hmm. David just told on himself, Nathanael's going to follow this up with, you are the man. But look at it. David even swears an oath by God. God! The one who wrote the Ten Commandments that he broke five of in just a few days. And the thing about it I love about this is, is Nathan is not, like, hiding this. Look at verse 3. It used to eat, this is the, the lamb, his morsel and drink his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Right? This word daughter in the Hebrew is the word bath. It's the start of Bathsheba's name. David can't see it. Why? Because he is blinded to his sin. Remember, sin is leprosy. It numbs us. Nathan is not being subtle. I mean, every single one of you knew what this story was about when you saw it. But our sin blinds us. Remember where David started, Saying, God, you brought me here, you did all of this, and he is so ingrained into this sin now that he can't even see it when it's right in front of him. Nathan calls him out and says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He says, Bathsheba didn't belong to you. Uriah is the right one. You took his wife and you took his life. Verse 10, now, therefore, because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me. You've taken Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David has despised God. He said, I don't care what you've done for me. I am going to do what I want in this moment because of my desires. And the result is David's family is a mess. Murder will be a constant threat. That promise, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, is not David saying, he's going to be out fighting. No, the fighting's going to be in his home. David's children are the picture of violence and terror to each other, worse than any soap opera you could even imagine. Half-brothers doing terrible things to their half-sisters. Murder, revenge, plots to overthrow the king, and the stealing of David's wives by a relative. What a mess. And it all stems from right here. 2 Samuel 12, thus says the Lord, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it in secret, but I will do these things before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have uttered, utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born it to you shall die. What an incredible picture of what sin does. This is the reason why we are still talking about David's sin to this day, to see the results of sin. So that's the story of David and Bathsheba. But there's one more piece we'll get to at the end of the sermon. So what does this mean for us? Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about how this landed a little bit on me. All right, this is not me, you know, having uh, this, you know, therapy session with all of you attending. That's not what this is. But to understand that this lands, this passage lands a certain way on leaders and servants in his church. So the first thing we, we need to remember is that it, this is Emmanuel, God with us for those who lead. Emmanuel for those who lead. So we need to be honest, first off, that we are led by sinners. We are led by those who sin. This warning here of King David touches all servants of Christ. How suddenly and fatally any of us can fall. I'm reminded of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it scares me, that one line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And of course, I went to Spurgeon for the sermon, and he punched me in the face, um, and this is what he said. David never refused to go to battle while he was harassed by his adversary, Saul. So long as he was hunted like a partridge on the mountains, David's character is spotless, his zeal unrivaled. But now, a stealthier foe is lurking in ambush. While the devil assails us on the right and on the left, we will hardly be able to rest on the couch of carnal security. The dog of hell barking in our ears keeps us awake, but when he ceases his howlings and our eyes grow heavy unless divine grace prevents it, when we are no more driven to our knees by the furious assaults of hell, we have good cause to cry out, Lord, let me not sleep. Let me stay awake and be self-controlled. Spurgeon's saying, as long as David was being chased, he was right with the Lord. But as soon as he started to get success, he started getting lazy and leaving the Lord wandering from it so much that he wanders into sin. See, sin is serious. When our, when our relationship with God begins to be lax, we start having pride. And what does the Bible say? Pride goes before a fall. 1 Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, David at any point could have chosen to stop. He could have admitted the power of sin. Yes, it would have been painful. But see, we all need to remember the enemy, our flesh, does not come at us in the places where it will be easily defeated. Instead, it comes at us at our weakest, in our weakest point. David had all the reasons to believe that he needed a break. He thought, oh, I can handle one little look. I don't need to confess it. My plan will work, and all i got to do is get rid of Uriah, and then it'll be okay. Lie on top of lie on top of lie. So for me, I look at this and I go, where's the hope for me? Where's the hope for me? David had the lineage. He was called a man after God's own heart. I know my heart. It's nowhere near that. He had success at a level that I could never dream of. Wealth, courage. He seemed to have it all. But I see this, and as I was reading it this week and last, I realized that I'm David. I'm sorry, but you got a David up here in front of you. Not saying I've got all that stuff, but I'm telling you, but by the grace of God, I'm going to do what David did. By the grace of God, unless by the grace of God, the elders are going to do What David did. Now, I'm not up here confessing that the elders and I are all embroiled in adultery. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to recognize that leaders sin, and we need your help to not do it. We don't have it all together. We covet your prayers. We need them so much. I need the gospel every single day, just like you need the gospel every single day. I need your prayers for my walking uprightly. The elders need that. So I want to encourage you, pray for Mike Galloway and his wife Karen, that they will walk uprightly, that they will finish the race. Pray for Ross Westcott and Connie, his wife, that they will stay strong, that they will walk the way that is narrow. Pray for Ray David and his wife, Susan, that, you, that they would both finish their race well. And pray for Rick and Debbie Gill, that they would shepherd and lead like Jesus. And pray for me and for my wife, We need your prayers. We need your encouragement. We need your help as we help you. This is what we need. And so this lands on me especially. Because not a month seems to go by where we don't see a pastor fall. The ones we hear about are the morality ones. But to be honest, adultery and abuse are not the only sins that pastors struggle with. There's pastors that fall because of bitterness embezzlement and stealing anger if it's a sin one of your one of those sins that you know that are sins your leaders have the potential if not the the history of having committed it but what's more scary for me is the leaders who get away with it now that's terrifying because there are leaders who are like David and they're just kidding themselves they're full of bitterness they're full of jealousy and they've learned to cover it up and to have a spiritual leader up in front leading you down a path to Jesus while they're not following him is terrifying a leader flirting with damnation a flirting with hell that's just it's mind-bogglingly terrifying so we pray we need your prayers pray for us but don't just pray for us elders Pray for the leaders in our ministries. Pray for the women's ministry leaders. Pray for our servants and leaders in the children's ministry. Pray for our teachers who are currently teaching our kids right now. Many of you in here are some of those. Pray for the other servants in the youth group, in the coffee ministry, in the greeters ministry. We all serve together and we need your prayers. Because what's true of me What's true of David, what's true of our elders is true of every single one of us. We are a hair's breadth away from doing all the things that David did. Don't think that we're not Davids in this room. But praise be to God that he is with us. And that goes to our second point. Emmanuel for those who have sinned. Emmanuel for those who have sinned. It's really easy for us to go, oh man, David got off so easy, he barely got punished. But we need to remember what I just said. If we start thinking David got off easy, we're condemning ourselves, because the truth of the matter is, when I've been sinned against, I want justice. I want them to be punished. And when I'm the one sinning, I want mercy so bad. And we're both on both sides of that. It says his sins were put away. David understood the weight of this. You know, it's not like us where we confess our sins and it's just kind of a verbal thing and maybe at the heart. David knew that confessing of sins always involved bloodshed. The sacrificial system pointed to this. Something had to die for your sins. So when the words, the Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die, they land especially on David. There's a story of the Marquis of Argyle who was sentenced to death. He was a terrible, terrible man who was sentenced to death. And as he was sitting in the, the room awaiting his execution, he felt the Lord remind him that if he confessed his sins, he would be forgiven. And he heard the Lord, your sins are forgiven. And he began weeping and burst into tears and just wept on his way to his execution. See, the, the, the fact that our sins have been forgiven is not landing on us like it should. We should have soul goosebumps from the fact that our sins have been forgiven. A God who passes over our sins should make us shudder with joy. But, in, but for us, it's, oh, my sins. Yeah, they're forgiven. David's shame would have been especially painful because this was a culture that shame and honor was out in the public. David is known now for his greatest sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die, says Nathan. What kind of judge does that? What kind of judge can do that? Is God unjust to to take his sins and go, "Ah, I wipe them out? Is this a kingly privilege? David, because he's the king and he's in charge and he's a male, he gets his sins wiped away? No, we have to remember what the Bible says. Romans 3.25 God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood, Christ's blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he would passed over former sins. That's David's sins were passed over. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have every right to be mad at God if all God did was lift the rug up and slide David's sins under there. But that's not what happens. When David's sins are set aside, they're not set aside just to kind of die and be forgotten. They're set aside to be put on Christ on the cross. God sees Down through the centuries to the death of his son. And he says, He's going to die in your place. I can forgive your sins now, David. This future redeeming work unites David with Christ. David's sins are counted as Christ's sins, Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. And then we get that final verse, verse 14 Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. God's forgiveness of guilt, of sin, is, is amazing, but he doesn't remove consequences. We don't know why the child died, like if it died of some act or disease or something, but we do know that God says the child is going to die. Could it have been a part of David's discipline? I don't know. But what it does show us is that forgiveness, while being marvelous, is always costly. The child will die. It's almost as if the child dies in David's place. Now, we don't need to read the New Testament back into the Old Testament, but we are familiar with a child of David dying in the place of someone else, aren't we? See, that's what Jesus did on the cross. David, though he's the greatest king, cannot solve the problems of Israel. We needed a greater king. David's too weak. He fails. But praise be to God that his heir, Jesus Christ, has done it. So God with us for those who have sinned. Next, Emmanuel for those who've been sinned against. Now, in this narrative, some would say, well, Bathsheba's been overlooked. I haven't heard any part of her story, but in actuality, she's not overlooked. God saw everything that happened to her just as much as he saw everything that David did. God doesn't cancel David, but he most definitely does not cast off Bathsheba. God does not overlook those who've been sinned against, those who are suffering at the hands of others' sins. He deals with them differently, though. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Because yes, sins are forgiven, but there's a whole other aspect to what God does with his salvation. In verse 24 of chapter 12, it says David became a comfort for Bathsheba. This means to console, to to care for. And Bathsheba is given a second son that she names Peace, Shalom, Solomon. All the same words. She's saying, I have peace now, Lord. Not only that, but she gets redeemed by being in the line of Christ. David has gone from misusing his power to using it correctly. Look at Matthew 1. I'll put it up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. This is the part we always skip past in the Christmas story. But the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez came the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashlon, and Nashlon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David's not the only one mentioned here. Matthew mentions four women, and they're all women that we wouldn't expect. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. They wouldn't have been in the top four of people that we would have expected. Where's Sarah? Where's Leah? These women we wouldn't expect. They all have, they all have controversy around them. In fact, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba by name because he wants us to remember what it was that made Bathsheba the wife of David the wife of Uriah. David and Bathsheba are related to Jesus. Women being mentioned in a genealogy is unheard of. There are no other examples for thousands of years of this. And yet here, Matthew is saying, these women matter. No matter what has been done to them, no matter how badly they've been abused, no matter where they came from, Rahab was a prostitute, and yet the Lord brings her into Jesus' lineage. Bathsheba was brought in, because this is the second part of the story. Not only is salvation about forgiveness of sins, salvation is about healing. Yes, he came to forgive our sins, and that's amazing, praise be to God, but it also extends to those who are suffering because others' sins. David, the sinner, needs forgiveness. And Bathsheba, yes, she's a, forgive, she's a human that needs forgiveness, but she needs healing. The Greek word for salvation is the word sozo, which our Bibles most of the time translate salvation, but another translation is to be made well or made whole. Now, salvation, when we think of it, praise God, that is forgiveness of sins. But salvation is so much more than that. It's like the words grace and mercy. Like the more we get into it, the more it just unravels with more and more truth. Salvation's the same way. Salvation is also healing for those who suffer because of sin. For the sinner, sozo means forgiveness. For the sufferer, sozo means healing. And this is good news because we are all Davids, we sin, we hurt people. We break covenant with God, but we're also, also Bathsheba in that people hurt us, and we feel sin, and we need both. You know, one of the things we say every single Sunday is, you need the gospel for every day. And it's really easy to go, well, you know, I'm not really sinning that much. But you are going to be sinned against. You need the gospel, the salvation purchased by Jesus for your healing as well as your forgiveness. This is why we started with Psalm 51 today. There is forgiveness and healing, but look where it comes from. It says, my wrongs must be purged and blotted out, verses 1 and 9. Reading the Gospels, we recognize that David's call for his sins being blotted out requires Christ to be blotted out. To be be broken. David's broken bones can rejoice in Psalm 51 because Jesus was broken on his behalf. Jesus is going to pay a staggering cost to make way for the worst of sinners to receive grace. And remarkably, this includes David. Jesus was also stepping into the pain of those who suffer greatly. There has never been a person who has suffered more wrong who's deserved so much more good. Christ deserves goodness and yet he gets abused, betrayed, and executed unjustly. So Christ knows about hurting. Christ knows about helping you through your hurting. Because the goal of sozo, salvation, is shalom. It's peace. So the true healing remarkably includes Bathsheba and you and me. The forgiveness of David is meant to be scandalous. It's meant to make us go, I don't get it. But praise be to God that it's there. Because ultimately we need to understand is that we have Christ for the sinner and for the sufferer.